Welcome to What's the Law Say, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director at Legal Aid of West Virginia, and in this episode, we will be discussing nursing home residents' rights with our ombudsman at Legal Aid of West Virginia. As always, if you don't want to listen to disclaimers, you shouldn't listen to podcasts that are produced by lawyers. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm. We provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All the information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys and advocates are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and uh, they can only give you information as it relates to the state of West Virginia. This is provided for informational purposes only. While I am, in fact, an attorney, please don't hold it against me. And we're also talking today with non-attorney advocates. This information is legal information and does not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As we've noted, I'm Clint Adams. I am the legal director at Legal Aid of West Virginia, and today I'm joined by Ed Hopple. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Tell us, what do you do at Legal Aid? I am what's called a regional long-term care ombudsman, and I know that's a mouthful, Um, but basically what I am is an advocate for residents in long-term care. And how long have you been in that position? Um, just a little over 12 years. And where do you work primarily out of? You said you do uh, regional long-term care. So talk a little bit about where you work from and what your region is. Sure. Um, I actually work from home. Um, and then my region, I have five counties. I cover Mon, Preston, Taylor, Harrison, and Lewis counties. And that would include nursing homes, assisted living facilities, um, personal care homes. They all fall under our jurisdiction. What is a what's the difference between a personal care home and a nursing home and and, and the other ones that you're mentioning? Typically, um, the most obvious is the level of care that the person person receives. So, nursing home is going to be in the highest level of care. Assisted living is it is a slightly less uh, intense level of care, and the personal care homes are you know they provide just the real basics. There's no medical involved in in the personal care home, um, and it, in West Virginia here, we call personal care homes le- legally unlicensed homes, and they're only allowed to have th- uh, three residents at a time. And so these these homes would not have um, medical, you wouldn't have nurses or CNAs or anything like that. They would just be providing uh, basic necessities of life, food, uh, assistance with grooming, things of that nature. Do I understand that? Yeah, basically. Um, and they provide the medications and stuff, but I mean, there's no nurse or anything like that in a legally licensed home or a personal care home. And in assisted living, you're going to have a nurse, you're going to have CNAs and, and those types of things. So when you go to the all of these facilities that you go into, walk me through how that looks and, and what you're doing in there and how you're going to interact with the residents. So basically, um, our visits are typically unannounced unless we have a meeting or some for other reason to be there. But if I'm just going there on a visit, um, I basically show up to the facility um, you know, check in at the front desk if they have one. I'm not all all do. Usually, I, I try to meet with either the administrator or the, if there's a social worker, the social worker, just to kind of get the vibe of what's going on in that facility. And then I I hit the floor basically and go out and talk to residents. I just basically wander around, see what I can see, and find people I can talk to. That could be residents, uh, family members, staff, basically anybody's open game basically. <laughs> So you then just might walk into a resident's room who may be sitting in there watching, um, I don't know, the $25,000 pyramid or something, and, and you might step in. What would that interaction be like? 
first I wouldn't just step in. I would knock at the door and ask, ask permission to go in. And once they gave me permission, then I, I would go in and basically I introduced myself. Okay, I'm an ombudsman and I usually get the look of what the heck's an ombudsman because there are other ombudsmen out there besides long-term care ombudsmen. So then I just basically say, I'm a nursing home advocate. I don't work for the facility. I'm just here on a visit. See if there's any problems or concerns at the facility. See what it's like to live here. And then start the conversation that way. And you know, sometimes we may delve right into the topic of how the food is or activities. Or sometimes they may not want to just talk about, about their lives. And if they do that, then we just talk about their lives for a little bit and see how that goes. So whenever you walk in, you introduce yourselves, you, you strike up a conversation with them um, about thing, how things are going. What are some of the things that you're looking for that, that maybe residents have a right to that, that might be troubling them? Oh, it can be a, a variety of things. It can be um, what time they get up in the morning, it, if they think they're getting good care, um, whether it's the shower or just you know any assistance that they need, how colleagues are answered, if they're answered timely or if it takes a long time. Just about anything. And residents complain about things other than things that aren't covered under residents' rights. And if it, I'm able to help, I help. Let's talk about the most common residents' rights complaints that you see and, and how the nursing homes respond to that. Let's start there. We see quite a f- few different different um, complaints. Um, some of the most common ones, believe it or not, are food and dietary issues, whether it's how it's made, what they're eating, you know. Um, I once had a, had a resident complain to me that what the facility was calling Salisbury steak was not Salisbury steak. Salisbury steak does not come in an egg shape. Uh, responding to requests for assistance, accessing their own information, their personal care, abuse, neglect sometimes. We also go down the weeds too if, if their Medicaid's been denied because of medical or financial reasons. We can help with those types of things as well. So let's let's talk about one of the things you noted. Food could be a common, you know, complaint. What what are what are the residents' rights as it relates to food? Are they allowed to eat anything they want? Well, they they have the the right to choose what what they want to eat um, from the menu that's provided. So most nursing homes have a have a main a main item available, and then ha- they have an alternate menu. Um, and some facilities actually have what they call always available. So. You know, if the resident decides there's nothing on here for lunch that I, I like, you know, I don't like the main selection, I don't like like the alternative, I can go to the um, always available list and pick something off of there. And it, that could be anything from a grilled cheese sandwich to a bologna sandwich to yeah, popcorn, pudding, you, you name it, whatever they have always available for the for the residents. So they do have the right to, you know, pick what, what they want to eat. However, it has to be, you know, on the menu for that day or available through the through the um, always available menu. But as far as that goes, I mean, we get complaints, like I said earlier, about about the regional foods. You know, we're here in West Virginia, um, biscuits and gravy and cornbread and all that kind of stuff is the norm. And one of the complaints we get sometimes is that's never on the menu. And so working with um, dietary and working with the administrator. Um, to try to get those on the menu, or at least get them on when the residents choose a day to have a special meal. And typically, most nursing homes uh, allow the resident councils to pick one day one day a month to have a special meal. And nine times out of ten, it's going to be something of that nature. 
So let's so let's walk me through that now. So you go into a resident, they're like, um, they wouldn't let me. Yesterday, I wanted to eat the hamburger that was on the menu, and they wouldn't let me eat the hamburger that was on the menu. Um, so because maybe they said your cholesterol is too high or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. does a resident have a, have a right to do that if the doctor says I don't want them eating hamburgers? They they can, they can you know choose what they want to eat. Um, they could they could they could do that. We have residents who are diabetic and, and want that piece of cake or whatever. Um, and there may be uh, ways to address that issue uh, medically. Um, for the instance where I gave with the piece of cake, you know, if they're on insulin, they may be on a sliding scale of insulin. So, you know, if their sugar is higher later that day, they may get more insulin than, than they would have before. But yes, uh, resident does have that right. They can argue that right. Um, we can argue it for them. You know, they really want this. You know, is there any way we can make this happen? So that's, you know, that, I think that's a great example, Ed. So let's walk that through. You go in, you meet with someone. Turns out they're diabetic, but they said they wanted a piece of cake. So their complaint to you is, cake's on the menu. I asked for cake, and they told me I couldn't have cake. What would you do from there? From there, I would um, you know, get their permission to intervene. And then I would either talk with either administrator or the social worker or maybe even the DON, depending on who's available, um, express you know their concern and their right to choose what they want to eat, even if they're diabetic, when we all have the right the right not to follow our our, our medical recommendations, if we will. Um, so, you know, talk with those to see if what we can do to get to that piece of cake, or you know, something something similar. Yeah, that's basically what I would do. Now, at any point, is this an adversarial process? It sounds like it's really more of an I'm trying to to walk in and, and visit with the maybe the kitchen or the staff at the nursing home and, or even the administrator perhaps, and, and trying to negotiate something here so we can work this out. At what point does this become more adversarial? It really takes a lot. Usually with most of the administrators and staff, I'm usually able to work things out for the most part. If they're not getting it or whatever, you know, it may become a little adversarial. I may become a little stronger in my advocacy. I may actually bring the regulations in that guarantees these residents' rights and show them where they're you know, not following the residents' rights. Um, I may take it further up the chain in the nursing home itself. I may go to the, you know, regional uh, vice president or whatever the case may be. And I have done that in the past. You know, if I if I can't convince the administrator or DON, you know, this is the residents' rights. This is the guaranteed right. I will I'll take it up the chain if I have to. I try to work it out though at the local level as best I can. And I, one thing I do when I first meet with the um, individuals when I first enter the facility. The one thing I'm doing besides getting a feel for what's going on in that facility, I'm building that rapport with those individuals. So, you know, we may talk about their kid's wedding. I know we talked about my kid's wedding a couple of years ago. So we build that rapport first. And then when it comes to the adversarial stuff, you know, it's less likely to be adversarial. And if it is, then it becomes adversarial. And they know that. Now, how would this interplay if there was a guardian appointed for the resident that's in the nursing home, right? Let's say their their son or their daughter is appointed as the guardian of the person in the nursing home. And the guardian says, look, I don't want them eating cake because they have uh, diabetes and that's going to create problems. How does that interplay and what's your role in that? I mean, the interplay is a little different um, only because the guardian has more quote unquote powers per se than than you know the resident would in that instance. However, um, I'd still advocate for what the resident wants. I'm a resident advocate. My my job is to get my direction from the resident. So even if there's a guardian or power of attorney or whatever the case may be, 
uh, we're still going to meet with the with the resident, and if the resident says no, don't do anything about this, or no, they're wrong. I want you to try to do this. Then we try to do what the resident wants. Um, so it can be it, that can be a little a little tricky because you know the guardian thinks I should be on their side and whatnot, and the only side I'm ever on is the resident side. Where that gets tricky is when two residents don't get along, and I'm trying to fix that issue because technically I'm both are advocates. So in those instances, I have to wear two hats and wear them rather quickly. Now, we've talked about, you know, this situation where we're, we're talking about food and, and certainly those those rights are absolutely important, particularly if you're a resident and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, is some of the things that you see more serious? Are there situations where you may see abuse or neglect of a nursing home resident and what's your role in those situations? Within the last number of years, and I can't remember exactly how many ago, the ombudsman are no longer mandatory reporters. Um, there for the longest time, we were mandatory reporters. We had to report abuse and neglect. However, our federal mandate basically says, you know, that's counterintuitive. We're supposed to be a resident advocate. How can we be a resident advocate when we're taking action against what the resident may, might want us to do or not do? So in instances of abuse and neglect, we're going to talk to the resident and find out what they want us to do. Depending on what the situation is and, and whatnot, there are some instances where we can act um, without getting their permission, but those are few and far between. Um, now, we do investigate abuse and neglect. Um, in fact, one of the um, a mandates th that is for a reporting abuse and neglect is that it has to be reported to Adult Protective Services. And the ombudsman program is one of the boxes that gets checked off. So we actually get a copy of all the abuse and neglect reports that happen within our territories. Um, so one thing I, I want to tidy up because you used a legal word that has legal significance, which is a mandatory reporter. And what that means for, for non-attorneys is some people in the law are required by law to report abuse or neglect to vulnerable populations. In this situation, this would be if you know of abuse to an elder person, then you might be required to report it. In this situation, our ombudsman do not fall into that category, um, but certainly doctors, nurses, uh, many of those people are required by the law if they suspect that there's abuse of an elder person to report that to Adult Protective Services, who then has a duty to investigate. Is there anything you want to add to that, Ed? Um, that's, that's basically it in a nutshell. Um, there's actually a, a whole list. In fact, one, one of the people on the list is uh, the, like the dog wardens, I believe. And you probably think, well, why, why would they be on the list? Well, if they're, if they're out checking on an animal and they, they see something, they can report it then, too. Um, mandatory reporters, um, like I said, it was something that we were, but it was, it was counterproductive to what we did. Um, but, but like I said, there are instances where we can report certain things and not have to get, get the residents permission. So you talked about one of the ways that you're going to serve residents is directly interacting with the nursing home. Another way may be involving somebody like APS if the resident um, wishes for you to pursue mm -hmm. something like that. What are some other ways that you protect the rights of nursing home, um, residents? One of the very first things we do with our interactions with them is we try to empower them to advocate for themselves. Um, and that's an, an extremely important part of what we do because um, a lot of times residents are able to advocate for themselves for whatever reason they feel like they can't or don't want to or whatever the case. So that we do a lot of that. Um, other ways we, we do it is we provide uh, trainings for facility staff um, on different topics. Um, we provide trainings for community groups 
as well. Um, we empower residents and resident councils where we attend a resident council usually at least once a year. Um, but when we're there on a visit, the other thing we do is we talk to the res resident council president if there is one or a representative of the council as well as another way to empower them. In fact, we actually have a specialized training that we we can do with the actual resident councils to empower them as a group. Um, so our regular presence in the facilities, providing information and assistance, whether it's by email or over the phone, to the residents, facility staff, you know, families and friends of the residents. And of course, we also participate in a wide variety of community groups and task forces as well. Now, as you mentioned, you advocate for the residents. Um, it, it, but let me ask you, are you are you attorneys that represent the, the clients or, or are you non-attorneys in your advocacy? We are non-attorneys. And then some of your advocacy sounds like is more informal. What are some examples where you might be in, in a more formal setting um, providing advocacy? There, there are a couple settings where it is more formal, such as, you know, um, if it's a discharge hearing, you know, if there's a hearing and the hearing goes before um, the hearing officer, um, we would we sometimes will represent the resident in those hearings. Um, and of course, that is a, a formal setting. Um, we also represent residents sometimes um, if the Medicaid has been their Medicaid has been denied medically or financially. Those are it's another time where goes to a hearing before a hearing officer, and we may represent the individual. We don't always represent. Sometimes if the individual is able to represent themselves or a family member is able to re represent them, we may coach them to get them prepared for it. Um, but there are times where we will actually represent as well. Now, when you talk about these uh, discharge hearings, for example, what are, what are the reasons that a nursing home may discharge someone? Those are for facility-initiated discharges. So the facility has decided they're going to discharge someone against their wishes or will or whatever the case may be. Um, those are the discharges we're talking about. Um, so in those cases, there's only six reasons, and it's both in the federal and the state uh, regulations and rules, of why a nursing home can discharge. Um, and they include um, the needs that the residents are greater than the facility can provide. In that instance, though, the facility has to show documentation of why they can't provide that that level need and why the place they're sending them to can provide that level need. Um, and that would include if they're discharging in, the, in that instance, it would be to another nursing home. You know, the resident hasn't paid for the hasn't paid their bill. Um, that's another reason that a resident can be discharged. Um, you know, their health has improved. That's always a good thing, but maybe not. Because um, maybe the resident doesn't feel their health has improved. You know, if their presence in the nursing home jeopardizes an, another resident's health, or if their presence in the nursing home jeopardizes another resident's safety. And of course, the last one is is if the nursing home itself actually closes. Those are the six reasons why someone can be discharged involuntarily from a, from a nursing home. So if none of those apply, the nursing home then is not a able to discharge someone in any event. That's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> so, but nonetheless, the nursing home has to argue the facts under each one of those brackets, right? And say, these are the six reasons I can do it. I think their health has improved. They may think that it hasn't. There may mm -hmm. even be conflicting. Let me make sure I understand. So let's say my doctor says my health hasn't improved, but a nursing home doctor says it has. What happens then? Nine times out of ten, um, if the re resident decides to fight 
or appeal the discharge, then um, it be it becomes you know up to the hearing officer to try to de determine if if the requirements have been met and whatnot. So that would go to hearing, and then both sides would present their their case, and then it's up to the hearing officer to make that determination. Um, a lot of times, though, we we can um, uh, you know abate some of these um, discharges ahead of time, you know, through working with the, the facility, talking with the facility. Um, if that is the case, um, we always ask that they provide the withdrawal in writing to the resident because they have to notify the resident in writing. So we always ask them to notify them that they're withdrawing the discharge in writing. So let's say they want to discharge me. My doctor says that I shouldn't, I'm not feeling any better. Their doctor says it is. We go to a hearing officer and the hearing officer says, I'm going to let them discharge you back to your house. Um, and I don't agree with that. What's the next step in the process is that you said there's an ability to appeal the hearings officer. What's that look like? Well, the first level of appeal is, is to the hearing officer. The next level is a civil and then it goes up from there. So in those situations, when you talk about a civil remedy, that means that you have to file an action in circuit court that would happen in the county where the nursing home is located, uh, because that would be the county that the resident was living in then. And then there's an appeals process beyond the circuit court that could presumably go through the intermediate or Supreme Court. Um, and that's how that appeal would happen. That would probably be something that you'd need to talk with an attorney about. Oh, yeah. Um, now, uh, when we talk about discharges, that, does that also include transfers? So let's say I, I run a nursing home and the beds get full and I want to move someone to a different nursing home um, that's close by and I own a series of nursing homes. Is, is the nursing home allowed to just do that? They still have to issue a transfer discharge notice. So all the, the rights that they have with a discharge also apply to that as well. One thing we see all the time is, you know, they like to... Uh, use a discharge notice as a threat letter. You know, they, they, don't, they don't mean they're going to discharge them, but they're trying to get them to whatever the case may be, pay their bill or whatever the case may be. As soon as that discharge notice is issued, all the rights that come with that discharge notice automatically are enacted. So, you know, they automatically can appeal a discharge, even, a discharge notice, even though the facility says we, we're not going to follow through with it. But a transfer to another nursing home, yes, it can be appealed. However, it doesn't mean that's necessarily going to stop that transfer because um, you may lose the appeal. You know, if they have all their I's dotted and T's crossed and, and met all their requirements under, under the regulations, you know, the discharge still might happen. What kind of an impact does that have on a resident whenever they're being transferred, uh, presumably against their will in some situations, and, and maybe they have substantial health problems or potentially even mental health issues that are also in play? What, what does that do to the residents? Well, it can cause what we call transfer trauma. What's supposed to happen is when someone's going to be discharged, they're given that 30-day notice, and during those 30 days, the nursing home is supposed to prepare that resident for that transfer or discharge. And that could include, you know, letting them know where they're going to go, what it's like where they're going to go, what services are available where they're going to go if they're not going home, if they're going to another nursing home. It's called discharge planning, basically, and it's preparing that resident for that discharge. A lot of times, times we see that if that doesn't happen, that's where we see the transfer trauma, and it can cause stress for the resident. It can cause uncertainty. It can cause, you know, they don't feel safe anymore. They don't feel, you know, they're losing their loved ones maybe because they're being moved, you know, two hours away from, from home 
or you know they're losing their friends at the nursing home they're losing their staff that they know and and trust um so there's a lot a lot of issues right around transfer trauma um that's caused by these types of transfer i was going to say the transfer trauma is something you know that may linger as well and may come back later you know later um down the road as something else that now, they're now fearful at the new nursing home. so if i have a loved one in nursing home care um, what could i do to lessen that impact make sure that that the discharge planning is is going you know if if you're a loved one and you know that they're planning on discharging their loved one being as active as you can be you know making sure that they're they're doing the discharge planning that they talk to the resident you've talked to the resident you know kind of preparing try to prepare them as best they can for that transfer if it does happen it doesn't always happen but if it does happen that way they're they're at least i hate to use this term mentally prepared for the actual transfer it may they may still have the trauma so if i have a loved one that's in nursing home care do i have a right to go visit them in in any situation and, and if not when are the times that my visitation could be limited well the right to visitation has nothing to do with visitors actually it's not the visitor's right it's the resident's right um so you know the visit people say all the time I have the right to visit my mom or visit my dad. No, you actually, you don't. The resident has that right to have visitors. So, you know, the resident has the right to have visitors, but they also have the right to ref refuse visitors. Like I said, we hear it all the time, but actually it's the resident who has that right to for the visitors. And unfortunately, that was one of the rights that was taken away during COVID because, because of limiting the, the outside people coming in. Um, and that's where a lot of this visitor rights came from. And what it's actually the residents' rights that was taken away. So does the resident now have the right to visit? I know we've we've cleared most of the state of emergencies and a lot of the the COVID provisions that had been enacted. Um, as it stands now, does the resident have the right to have anyone come visit them that they want? Yes. So yes, the residents can have visitors, and like I said, they can actually refuse visitors as well. There are occasionally COVID outbreaks in these nursing homes. Mm -hmm. um, if the resident has COVID, is the nursing home um, then going to suspend his, his or her right to have visitors during that time? No, no, okay. not at all. Not at all. Um, they may strongly suggest that they not visit so they don't end up with COVID. Um, and typically um, the nursing homes will have posted if they ha have a COVID outbreak on the front door. Um, and some nursing homes are really good about communicating with the family members of the current COVID status of their facility as well, too. So they may know ahead of time. But no, um, studies have been done recently that have shown that social isolation caused by the COVID pandemic in the early parts was actually very detrimental to residents. And it's something that CMS and the CDC have, have recognized getting those visitors in, you know, with precautions. Um, and those precautions really vary according to the outbreak status of the facility or the outbreak status of the community that they're in. Um, some facilities, if it's a low outbreak status and they have no COVID in, it, in the building, they may choose to not uh, require masks. And other buildings may always require a mask. So as you noted, the resident has the right to receive visitors and they can receive any visitors. Are there any reasons that a nursing home could prohibit a visitor uh, that, that a resident may want? Yeah, and that's actually somewhat limited. And the way it's limited, um, it really depends on the reason, the reason that they're wanting to exclude a, a visitor. You know, in very rare cases, um, we do see at times where uh, a visit by a particular visitor may have a negative medical effect on a resident. So 
say every time you know the son visits, mom's blood pressure goes sky high, and she becomes very agitated after the fact. But if they're going to exclude somebody because of that, it has to be clearly documented in that residence record that this is the cause and effect of, of, of that. And anytime, like um, if a medical um, decision maker decides, you know, I don't want my sister visiting mom, that can't happen unless it's medically shown that there's a negative effect on the resident um, because they only, they only have the right to choose uh, or control the medical decisions there, you know, therefore that may or may not be a medical decision. And if it's just because she doesn't want to visit mom because she, she doesn't like her sister, that's not a reason. The other reason might be because of a court order. So there wouldn't be any, all these would be fact specific. There wouldn't be any, a nursing home couldn't say, we're not going to let people come in if they've been convicted of a felony, or we're not going to let people come in if they've been convicted of, of some other t- type of crime where they couldn't single anything out. It would have to be fact specific and it would have to relate to the care of that resident. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yes, yes, yes. And, th- and there are some other instances as well um, where they may ask someone to leave or ask them not to come back. You know, if they're being disruptive to the whole entire facility, for example, that may be a reason a, a nursing home may ask someone to leave. So if someone listening to uh, this broadcast would be in a nursing home or would have a loved one in a nursing home and feel like they needed some assistance in either understanding their rights or in enforcing their rights, how could they contact the ombudsman program? Um, there's a couple ways they could actually contact us. The first way is through our, we have an 800 number. Um, it's 1-800-834-0598. Um, they can reach out to us by email. Um, our information is posted in, in all the nursing homes. And they could also even call the state ombudsman. And that's Suzanne Messenger, and her phone number is 304-816-3151. Well, Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us. Any parting thoughts? You know, when in doubt, if you have questions or concerns, reach out to, to the local ombudsman. You know, besides investigating complaints, we answer a lot of questions as well. Sounds great. Thanks again, Ed. Appreciate you right, taking you. the time. Sure. More information about the Long-Term Care Ombudsman and Nursing Residents' Rights is available on our website at LegalAWV.org or by calling 800-834-0598. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What's the Law Say? A presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.